So it's a huge pleasure for me to introduce Victoria Glendinning today, partly because she's a great friend and someone whose work I have always admired hugely, and partly because she is one of the biographers who I simply enjoy reading the most. Uh, in all the very many different lives she's written of Elizabeth Bowen, Vita Sackville-West, Rebecca West, Edith Sitwell, Anthony Trollope, Jonathan Swift, Leonard Wolfe and Stanford Raffles, there's a constant quality of sympathetic understanding, sharp focus, fast-paced storytelling and generous, humane and humorous interest and curiosity. The same is true of her novels. To read her is to have a vivid sense of a character in its time, a riveting narrative and a feeling that the voice that is speaking is speaking directly, warmly to you, the particular reader, and not just to a generality of readers. What she always gives, too, is a sense of the choices and confusions of life, not a determined narrative where all the questions can be answered, a sense of perpetual chances and possibilities, a feeling that even in the worst parts of life, nothing is wasted. Her biographies of Leonard Wolfe, published in 2006, and most recently of Raffles, published in 2012, enter with great imaginative understanding into the lives of two figures who, in utterly different ways and at different times, left their mark on England's colonial history. Her treatment of Leonard brilliantly captures his doggedness, his persistence, his rationality, his sense of justice, his dry humour, his incredible appetite for work, his powerful intelligence, passionate but disciplined nature, political courage, orderliness and lack of sentimentality. In writing The Village in the Jungle, uh, Victoria describes him as a rational man launching himself into the jungle of unreason. And I hope we'll hear more of that view today. Her life of Raffles, the remarkable story of the East India Company man, Lieutenant Governor of Java and founder of Singapore, vividly scenic, action-packed and atmospheric, conjures up, as she says, an ambitious visionary, an entrepreneur of his own ideals and a utopian imperialist, an energetic, charming, impetuous character with a flaring vitality. Those qualities of charm, energy, vitality and vision are ones I also associate with today's speaker. So please make her very welcome. Goodness me, Hermione, thank you very much. It's really nice to be here. And I won't talk for too long because um, I've been here half, the day, here half the day and I know you've had a very rigorous day. But I do think it is wonderful to be talking about a novel uh, because the discourse, as I have already understood from you, is so, is so manifold. And when one is discussing a novel, you can dwell on the literary influences, contemporary or from the past, the text as text, on the form and structure, which may be either innovative or in the tried and tested tradition, or on the intention, if that by chance was relevant. But it can be equally interesting, especially from a psychological point of view, to tease out the state of mind of the author when he wrote this particular book. So I'm coming to you from another part of the jungle, but I'm not a very fierce animal. And I would like to suggest that there was an awful lot going on in Wolf's mind and in his life when he wrote The Village in the Jungle. He was in a state of multiple conflict. 
Home on leave, he had to adjust to life in England after the transforming years in Ceylon. And if he were to marry Virginia Stephen, he couldn't go back to Ceylon or remain in the colonial service. This was obviously impossible. She wouldn't fit into colonial life, either physically or intellectually or emotionally. He also found stifling and limiting his upholstered, conventional Jewish family life in Collinet Road in Putney, the diametric opposite of the mindset of his Cambridge friends and of what was going on in Bloomsbury. But he found them difficult, even maddening as well. The expectations of him from the two groups was very high and utterly different. His mother was assuming he would marry Sylvia Ross, the nice Jewish girl whose mother was the neighbour and best friend of Mrs Wolfe in Collinet Road. And, of course, he could have. He might have. It would have been so easy. And there was something between them. Even after he moved out of Collinet Road into a room in the Stevens' new home, 38 Brunswick Square, in December 1911, whenever he went home at weekends, there was a family visit with the Rosses, and saw Sylvia, he wrote in his diary, also gloomy. And in the evenings in Brunswick Square, he talked to Lytton and or Virginia on into, the small, in, on into the small hours on subjects which were unknown and certainly absolutely unmentionable in Collinet Road. He was conflicted in how to reconcile sexual desire with idealistic romantic love and intellectual companionship. As he wrote in his short story, which was again around this time, A Tale Told by Moonlight, it was about the time he was finishing the village, he wrote, The body is damnably exciting. It's only when we don't pay for it that we call it romance and love. He was also conflicted about his Jewishness, which the Bloomsburys, in the context of his possibly marrying Virginia, rather patronisingly decided didn't really matter. Indeed, Virginia liked to maximise for dramatic effect the fact that she was marrying a penniless Jew and she allowed herself to be quite malicious about his home and about his mother and his family. So, conflict. And as Wolfe fell in love with Virginia, he began existing in that state of heightened emotional tension that comes of being passionately, obsessionally in love, where articulate people who are not poets write poetry and pour out their feelings on paper, as did Wolfe, and I'll come to that. Now, some of you may be in that in-love state right now, so you'll know what it is to live like this on a daily basis. If you are not right now, <laughs> then try and remember... <laughs> it is not ordinary it's a kind of ecstatic madness you plunge to the depths and rise to the heights and actually it's biologically very functional because if it didn't happen they wouldn't be able to get together at all and so it was with Wolf, who was also riddled with doubt about himself about her about how they could be together with a lot of writers you have to intuit their state of mind reading between the, live, the lines of the work following clues of imagery, setting, constellations of characters or attitudes, and it's a very chancy exercise, because to write fiction is to turn yourself inside out. It's not like making a cake. It's not even like, like writing a biography, 
from given ingredients provided from the exterior. What is inside you has been made into something that can be presented in a finished, confected form. Imagination, yes, but you cannot imagine in or out of a vacuum. And novels can grow out of experiences and memories or out of grief, desire, anger, obsession, wish fulfilment, intellectual passion, revenge, fear of what has not yet happened but might, insights, ideas, plus maybe even something irresistible overheard on the bus. Any or all of the above. And if you judge a book as a political text, you, you are reducing it to a, a fable or a tract, and actually, missing, you don't get the plot, literally. Uh, but then the trouble is, there is so much that you can never know about someone else's mental processes, and mostly you don't even know about your own. And I found a short book by the generally impenetrable Jacques Derrida, very suggestive and helpful in this context. Some of you may have read it. It's called Mal d'Archive, and it's translated as Archive Fever, and subtitled A Freudian Impression. And it's really, actually, about psychoanalysis. Wolf was never analysed, and nor was his wife, though members of the group were later deep into it, and Wolf, as we know, was later to publish Freud uh, with the Hogarth Press. And he wrote a remarkably perceptive review of Freud's The Psychopathology of Everyday Life when it appeared in English first in 1914, at a time when, honestly, not many people over here were into Freud at all. Derrida is interested in the paper archive, in our case today, the primary historical archive, the letters of Leonard, Virginia, Vanessa, Lytton, Strachey, etc., as the primary archive, plus their books. And then the secondary an infinitely expanding archive, being the biographies, works of criticism, and indeed the proceedings of events such as today's, because the secondary archive is never closed. It is endlessly spawning new archival material, as well as recalling, reconstructing, and sometimes it's distorting what's already there. As Derrida wrote in this, his own writing becomes archival the moment he presses save on his Apple Mac. But then Derrida has the more interesting idea of a psychic archive, which is accessed through psychoanalysis and I believe through creative writing, at a level way beneath consciousness or memory. And Derrida uses an archaeological image about layers of inscriptions affording glimpses of infinite possibility for archaeological exploration. Colonial memoirs used to have titles like through the Raj with rod and gun. <laughs> well, I'm not about to be going through Leonard Wolfe's unconscious with rod and gun or taking the route of Freudian biography or Freudian interpretation of Wolfe's state of mind when he wrote The Village in the Jungle. What I am immediately interested in for a revelation of his tensions and conflicts when he was writing the book is his Aspasia papers, these are private writings of Wolfe's done during the period at Brunswick Square and before he got married, in the period when he was writing his book. And some of you um, may have looked at them in his vast archive in the University of Sussex. Has anybody looked at the Aspasia papers? Okay. He had begun, begun calling Virginia Aspasia in his diary, 
Aspasia in life was the cultivated mistress of Pericles in the Athens of five centuries before Christ. And other friends and their behaviours are also disguised in the Aspasia papers by classical names. Marjorie Strachey, Lytton Strachey, Saxe Sidney Turner and so on. Aspasia herself is described in terms of virginal purity, mountains with snow upon them, the wind upon the Sussex Downs. Everything that the beckoning tarts that the writer of these papers encounters on London streets are not. Aspasia, quote, does not really know the feeling which alone saves the brain and the body that after all nothing matters. I am always frightened that with her eyes fixed on the great rocks she will stumble among the stones. And yet Aspasia knows that Dung is dung, death, death, and seamen, seamen. Sometimes she thinks she has no heart and is touched by nothing and that she cannot possibly understand the sordidity of real life. She swoops, he writes, like a bird between reality and romance, which join inextricably to form her. That's a formulation of granite and rainbow, in fact, Avonalette. So for pages and pages he frets about what Aspasia, Virginia, is really like. She is maybe vain and a liar. Yes. His apostolic Cambridge friends he calls in the Aspasia papers the Olympians. He's not blind to their oddnesses and inadequacies. He is quite scarily objective. The Olympians sit round in their armchairs and... I should not be surprised if you thought them rather dull and the silence is rather uncomfortable, for every every so often they sit and don't even talk. They are, however, thinking and very often feeling. They think a great deal and talk a great deal about what the others of them think and feel. You would probably call this gossip. <laughs> Indeed, again... Even G. E. Moore, their Cambridge mentor and guru, is made slightly ridiculous by Wolfe's remorseless reasoning. There is nothing but blither, blither, blither about the isness of is and the wasness of was and the willness of will and the everythingness of everything. As for himself, whom he styles Namus in the um, Aspasia papers, he is wonderfully intelligent but lustful, a horror, a gazer after women, vicious because he loves the refinements of vice. He is cold and hard. There is no ignoble nor cruel act which he would not do if he could do it secretly. Also, this is the painful part, he is an outsider, a foreigner from the East. We are back to the fact that he is a Jew, though he styles himself here a Syrian. I was born at Jericho, and like most of the inhabitants of Jericho, I have a long nose and black hair. I should like to live on Olympus, but all Syrians are wanderers, and I doubt whether any of them are really Olympians. So this was the conflicted and confused and unresolved young man who wrote that extraordinary work, The Village in the Jungle, contemporaneously. Uh, I think that we would all agree that great novels do not very often grow out of complacency or contentment, and this one certainly didn't. And like many great novels, The Village in the Jungle is based on something and somewhere specific. But apart from immersing himself in reading and reading in Sinhalese in, in those months, which is why I sort of wondered whether quite a lot of the... Uh, w when we were talking this morning about um, 
the jungle and attitudes to the jungle and paying back to the jungle, whether it had come from folklore, which I haven't done the research. But he didn't have to research his setting and his characters, as many novelists who pick on a subject must. And he used for some of the incidents his own, again as we heard, official diaries and reports, and his letters to Lytton Strachey, sometimes verbatim. I have thought, I've had to think quite hard about whether there was, whether there is also any direct literal input from what was going on in his life and in his mind at the time of writing it. And though some may still find this a useful way to go, I haven't convinced myself that this is so. The only thing I can think is perhaps there is something in his evident internalisation of unstable gender barriers, as was the case with the Cambridge friends and Virginia herself, and also to do with Virginia's closeness to, to Vanessa. I'm thinking about the twin sisters, the beautiful androgynous young girls, their muscles firm as a man's because of their excursions with their father into the jungle, which made them different and suspect to the villagers. Punchy Manika, says the malicious headman's wife, wants but three things to make her a man, presumably a cock and two balls. And then there is handsome, long-haired baboon's physical ambiguity. I'm quoting again. His expression was curiously virile and simple, but his brown eyes, which were large and oval-shaped, swept it at moments with something soft, languorous and feminine. It's a seemingly sort of gender-free wolf who writes the novel. Yet, in the Aspasia papers, In Love with a Beautiful Woman, conflicted again, he violently repudiated the homoerotic world and the homoeroticism in himself, calling the classical figure who stands in for Goldilows Dickinson an effete and rotten old lecher in the body of a eunuch frog. I would rather touch a decaying fish than his body. He, was, he had become sexually liberated in what he felt to be an animal way with a, a woman or woman in Salon and later in London, and this was always paid for love. And at the same time, he was aware of Virginia's idiosyncratic differentness, and he himself was long under the spell of Lytton's increasingly flamboyant gayness, and Lytton did not give up for quite a long time in his semi-playful persuasion to entice, entice Wolf into his camp. It was the, this raw, exposed, vulnerable, unresolved, conflicted state, somewhere quite far down in the strata of Derrida's psychic archaeology in which he was existing, which I think liberated him to write such a novel as The Village in the Jungle. It comes from a pure source and a deep well. The first few famous brilliant pages, the last few brilliant pages about the jungle, transcend normal description or place writing. Yet the jungle is evil, he writes, and shows why. This is not just his empathy with its power over the villagers, he had felt it himself. There's a passage in his autobiographical volume, Growing, about the jungle being a cruel and dangerous place, and being a cowardly person, I was always afraid of it, yet I could not keep away from it. His deeper empathy with Silindu and the others comes from his understanding that the jungle was simply all they knew. It was the condition of their existence. It was their world. 
both as a source of food and a source of danger and death. It's an obvious, crass understatement to say that Wolfe's own emotional and physical geography, from his administrative district to Colombo and outwards to London, Cambridge, Europe, the whole world of Western culture of an educated man, was unknown, inconceivable and therefore incomprehensible in Badagana. The villagers are credulous, without abstract speculation, and they are supremely fatalistic. They fall sick and die not only from disease, but from grief or terror, curses or spells, or from being removed from their village. Wolf kind of bridged the cultural abyss, entering, sometimes it seemed to me, by direct transmission into their simplicity. He uses the word simple a lot and entering into the kind of magical thinking about cause and effect, with its quite different logic, which is accessed in modern civilization only by children, poets, artists, and those considered mentally deranged. That he could write on this level makes me think that Wolfe was the right person to be with Virginia, and not just in the ways that her friends and relations thought he would be, clever enough to be up to her, and a safe pair of hands, though, of course, he was that too. I, um, when we were talking about um, the political attitudes, colonial, not colonial, la, 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 I would like to say that I think the writer of a work of creative fiction is not on trial. Um, and, of course, the other thing I do not know, and nobody knows because we're not old enough, and probably nobody here comes from a village anything like Badagama, whether he, was, whether he got it right, whether he got his empathy right. He might have got the whole thing wrong. Um, it, it is a construct. But we have to remember that a novel is art. It is not a tract. It is not a polemic. Um, going back to the marriage and the fact that he was, perhaps, because he had access to these Deridian depths, that he was the right person to be with Virginia, I, I w have been very struck, and this must have been very strange for both of them the extent that theirs was a made marriage I mean I don't think it would have happened I don't know what Hermione thinks because she knows everything about this much more than I do without the encouragement, the manipulation almost the conspiracy of Vanessa and others but that like I say is another story this feat of imaginative sympathy, right or wrong but it is a feat in the village impressed me so much that I failed to clock properly until recently the carefully emphasised hard edge of economic realism which rules the villagers' lives. Uh, the chain of system of cultivation, the requirement to work on the roads if you couldn't pay your tax, and fear and hunger and above all debt, as Priyasha has illuminated so well for us today. I, that was wonderful for me. It's the long chain of debt from the simple villager to the wily headman to the opportunistic Muslim or kappa outsider of borrowing against the harvest, of iniquitous interest on the borrowing impossible ever to redeem, of the reality of starvation if you couldn't borrow. All this is Wolf the administrator who knew, who had seen how the system worked. And 
um, in my opinion, this has not got a lot to do with imperialism, but with the dynamics of subsistence living in an almost closed society and the inhumanity of man to man. I mean, let us not think that if Wolf and his administration had been somehow wiped from Ceylon overnight, that the headman would have been kind, that the Muslim interloper would have been more merciful. Um, this is what people who live together in very difficult circumstances do to each other. The conscious, analytical wolf, the civilised man, the bureaucrat, the imposer of order, is not, however, asleep in the village and the jungle, and not only because of his um, infiltration of the importance of debt. In fact, that conscious, civilised wolf is responsible for what seems to me the only slip in perspective or point of view in the whole book, a kind of design fault, if you will, when Silindu comes into the house of the white Hamadoru, he has never seen anything like it before. It seemed to him to be full of furniture, and all the furniture to be covered with strange objects. Okay, that is through Silindu's eyes. But then comes a description of the room in terms that Silindu could not have conceived of or had words for. Ugly ornaments, mostly chipped or broken, and a great many spotted and faded photographs, several sentimental pictures, lamps, a bookcase. This is Wolf describing Wolf's own room, and it must have been quite irresistible. But it does break the spell. Suddenly and jarringly, to me, we are outside Cylinder's consciousness and into the author's own. And though I don't, and perhaps somebody can explain to me afterwards, I don't altogether understand the import of the old Buddhists' interventions towards the end of the story. I can find no other technical glitch in the novel. Wolf, when he came home, was burning to write something about Ceylon for its own sake, and he was released, I think, into something greater, almost greater than he could do, at that time of risk and heightened sensibility facing his own demons and Virginia's. It, um, even though it was published in not till after they were married in 1913, it was written mostly before, it might have been corrected. And although the village in the jungle is a triumph, there is also to me something absolutely heartbreaking about it. Because Wolf never, ever again found a way into the deeper strata of his own archaeological psychic archive after this inspired foray. He certainly was not helped by the responses of his closest friend. My tastes, wrote Lytton Strachey, are not for blacks, etc. And the more black they are, the more I dislike them, and yours seem to me remarkably black. I did hope for one bright scene at least with some fetid white wife of a governor. His plea for Leonard's next novel was whites, whites, whites. And so Wolf did write what you might call a modern novel about whites, the wise virgins. Um, have you read that? Yes, some have. Rehearsing again his sexual conflicts and his miserable ambivalence about his Jewish suburban family background, and that novel caused his mother and his sisters much, much anger and unhappiness. Even though now he is older, the man, that, I mean a few years older, the man that wrote um, The Wise Virgins, and now married to Virginia, it is somehow an adolescent novel of disgust, alienation and revolt. And his countervailing ambivalence about 
what is in the book, the Gordon Square set, is still smouldering, i.e. nothing is resolved at all. The anti-hero Harry, in spite of his love for Camilla, stroke Virginia, despises the climate of her Gentile coterie. There was no life in them, no dark hair, no blood. They never did anything. Jews had to do something just because they were Jews. The Gentile women have thin hair, pale faces, no passion. For its time, The Wise Virgins is a candid, faintly shocking, not bad novel. But it doesn't achieve any deep level in the wolf psychic archaeology. But the loss, the terminal loss of creative depth, is definitively apparent in the very first Hogarth publication, Two Stories. Two Stories one by him, one by his wife. Wolf's The Three Jews is another excursion into Jewish identity. It's quite painful. The first two of the three Jews coinciding by chance in a tea room beside Kew Gardens on a very English spring day. And one says to the other, We show up, don't we, under the apple blossom in this sky? It doesn't belong to us. Do you wish it did? They do not like us, you know. Neither of the two was an observant religious Jew. The third one is. But even he can't happily negotiate being a Jew in a country where his son marries not only a goy, but a goy who is the family's servant, and there is no idealization of the orthodox here. But I think also when we're thinking about the way he talks about um, the indigenous people of Ceylon or of anywhere else, he has... a way of understanding and identification because of his own deep feeling about being an outsider, which I think never left him. Again, in this story, which doesn't really work, there's only lack of resolution. The fault lines are mainly structural, as in fact Forster pointed out to him, to do with incomplete framing. He starts it as a framed story, with somebody telling a story about something, but there's no frame at the end, and it, 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 it is not a well-made story. But the whole point is that Wolf, even this far on, is still unresolved about being a Jew in England. Morgan Forster, who questioned the conventional framing, um, also questioned it in that story, A Tale Told by Moonlight, um, which I mentioned before. And, and, and um, Forster said something. Present the scene as a blur, wrote Forster, out of which the narrative would emerge. And Wolf could not do blur. The other item in two stories, Virginia's The Mark on the Wall, is in a different league. Virginia could do blur in spades. And when people say to me, incredible though it may seem to you, they sometimes do, I just don't get the point of Virginia Woolf, I tell them to read The Mark on the Wall, that inspired underwater reverie of old conversations, memories, images, resentments, longings, and the early for her, but also to me definitive, meshing of her artistic fastidiousness with that kind of psychological fluidity that in her life, in her real life, crashed sometimes into incomprehensible gabble and insanity, or what the world calls insanity. And after reading two stories, Lytton wrote, Virginia's is, I consider, a work of genius. Well, of course, he was right. But this was in a letter to Wolfe, and Lytton didn't say one single word about Wolfe's own story, The Three Jews, to him. 
I suppose the contrast would have been too painful. And from then on, there was a kind of compass correction. Lytton and Wolfe no longer corresponded as before as soulmates and intimates, and Lytton transferred to Virginia the dialect of their intimacy. She was finding her fictional voice as Wolfe was facing up to the limitations of his own, and he gave up. His life was taken over by the Webbs, Margaret Llewellyn Davis and the Women's Cooperative, the Fabian Society, the burgeoning Labour Party, questions of interna international government, the New Statesman. He was involved with the League of Nations Society. He attended meetings and weekend conferences and seminars, joined the Union of Democratic Control and other political organisations identified by completely now impenetrable acronyms, and became a linchpin in the world of seminars, meetings, campaigns, advisory committees, endless committees in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms, an expert on agendas and minutes and motions and white papers and blue books. He edited, he compiled, he expressed outrage, anger, he became a polemicist. He was still and always capable of writing lovely paragraphs, especially about the natural world. And he wrote carefully, caringly and with empathy about his wife in his autobiography. But his other self had taken over, terminally. He no longer went public about what it felt like being a Jew in an unthinkingly anti-Semitic society. He no longer expressed his anxiety about his own Jewishness. He no longer wrote about sex and the body. The when, as an older man, as an old man, at an all-male lunch given by the novelist Anthony Poe, each was asked to say having had quite a lot to drink, how he would like to spend the last day of his life. And Wolf said, I would like to spend it fucking, which all the other men in the room found slightly embarrassing because they knew that that hadn't been really the big thing with Virginia. <laughs> but normally, he no longer wrote or spoke with the kind of naked openness that came to him and that produced the village in the jungle. And yet there was something about him when he was older that magnetised people, uh, an awareness of his self-discipline, of much suppressed, of sexuality suppressed, flashes of empathy from those eyes which drew people to him. Remember that he said of Aspasia right back then that she did not understand that nothing matters. And nothing matters in his life became his mantra. He always said it to people and he wrote it. But when again, very late in his life, a young BBC producer challenged him on this on a visit to Rodmel. He turned on the Rodmel stairs on his way up to his office and said to her, everything matters. And that's the man who wrote The Village in the Jungle. And however much is said and written about Wolf and his wife and his political books and his work for socialism as a publisher, I think The Village in, Ramon in the Jungle remains as a lasting artistic legacy. That's all I can say now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.